let's have some fun. Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome back to This Month Amplified with David Gritz and Tony Liu, the co-founders of InsureTech New York and the inimitable Teresa Blissing. So Teresa, should we mention that we're amazed that David and Tony sound like they're on the radio? It's just amazing. Anyway, you guys sound great. Let's talk about some news first. So last week we published an episode with Ivan O'Neill from WooWee. And we had this a long conversation about State Farm and Allstate stopping to write homeowner policies in California. What, what are they doing? What's the implication of it? Go ahead, David. Yeah, so there was an announcement from Bradley Flowers from Portal Insurance, uh, who's actually an agent that uh, we've had at our office and fellow podcaster, but essentially Nationwide is making it much harder to write new business and putting more underwriting requirements on agents. And I think it's kind of a reflection that they have limited capacity and um, might not be performing from an underwriting perspective in the same way that Allstate and State Farm were in the cat exposed states. Obviously it's not great for consumers because they are losing ways to get insured, but it could be an opportunity for some new upstart uh, insure techs or uh, other smaller players to kind of get in that market, uh, find better ways to uh, underwrite and, and capture the market. I think it's, a, it's, it's potentially a obviously not a great uh, situation for for most people, but it could be a good opportunity to to make a uh, make this situation an even better better situation. Teresa, what do you think? Well, you know, we had this this great conversation um, with Ivan from uh, Vui um, last week. I think we published that, and he spoke about how climate change, and you know, in his case, talking about the wildfires um, in, in in California, impact that. And I think that's that's the consequence we are seeing um, with these players pulling out and stopping to underwrite certain risks, right? And I think it is a bigger um, problem that not only, you know, California, but that we are facing globally with climate change and, um, you know, having these extreme weather conditions. You know, I lived in Australia before I came here last year. There was the flooding this year. There are again bushfires. We have the fires in um, Canada um, this year where a few weeks ago we had all the, you know, smoke coming into New York City. So I think, you know, we will see more of these extreme weather conditions and more insurance companies consequentially, you know, stop underwriting these risks. But what is the solution? And um, I think, you know, Tony mentioned it briefly. There is a huge opportunity for insurtechs and new players coming in, understanding the risks, but also, you know, avoiding risks. Um, that's also what Ivan talked about. So I think that is really a topic um, we should all be looking at more closely over over the next years because this is not going away. Yeah, I mean, climate change itself is controversial enough, but one of the things that Ivan and I talked about on that episode was the political implications of this and the political reasons behind it. One of the things we mentioned was that it, it almost felt like some of the insurers were trying to put political pressure on the government of California and maybe Nationwide is trying to do the same thing in Georgia to say, I don't think you have your regulatory environments in order yet. And we're not going to do anything until you do. And the second thing for me is because David mentioned this is the capacity, right? And that's, that's actually a real problem. If they're running out of reinsurance, the ability to have capacity for this stuff, that's a big deal. No, David? 
Yeah, no, I think uh, it's definitely a challenge if the you know traditional insurers are running out of the ability to get capacity from the reinsurance market. And I think it's a reflection up the value chain, because if you think about it, um, ultimately, many of the reinsurers are not using their balance sheets for capacity, but they're going to the capital markets or going to insurance linked securities markets, and they're ultimately getting that through catastrophe bonds that they're issuing through, you know, family offices or other institutional investors. And if those investors see other credit products as higher opportunity and less risk, then they're going to go into those. And that's also kind of tying us back originally to increasing interest rates. Yeah, I mean, that was the one thing that we also we also talked about it, but it's the one thing we haven't mentioned on this too. And David, you've actually brought up a really good point. And maybe maybe the next time we have a conversation, we should talk about how the capital markets and how the public markets are changing the way the reinsurance are actually distributing their capacity and where that new capacity is coming from. You're right. If you look at even in Asia, but just globally, where how family offices are trying to make money, in the old days, right, they would invest in real estate or they would invest in stocks. And now they're moving into... They did some private equity too, but now they're moving into startups and actually moving into the capacity space too. It'd be great to have like a whole conversation on that if you really want to get controversial about how the capital markets are working. Let's do this. Let's talk about another great subject. Let's talk about diversity and inclusion in the insurance industry, if that's okay with everybody else. And, and Teresa, why don't we start with you? How, would we, how should we describe the current state of diversity in the insurance market or in the industry, excuse me? That's a difficult question to answer. Like, you know, from my perspective, having lived all over the world, really, right? Um, you know, we met in Asia and I found in Asia, when we're looking at um, gender diversity, right? There was there was not a lot of like women in that space. I have spoken at countless conferences and, you know, many times I was the only woman or, yeah. you know, maybe maybe one, one other. But um, it was very rare to find um, female leaders in the space. We have been, you know, trying with the Asia InsurTech podcast to get like kind of a gender balanced um, speaker list, but it's, it is, you know, it's simply impossible to do that. When I spend time in in Australia, um, you know, in terms of gender diversity, it felt really equal there. And I have a similar feeling now to, you know, when it comes to the US, but maybe David and um, Tony can, can uh, share a bit more given that I've just arrived. So I guess it depends on the market. I think you know, like an overall perspective on a global level um, is, is is not not really possible. Um, if we look at other factors of diversity, um, gender, sexual orientation, uh, race, etc., um, I think we still have a long way to go overall. But yeah, there are definitely differences in 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 markets. My perspective on this is kind of split. One is. A lot of people in insurance are insurance for lifers and they don't necessarily rotate around in other industries to have perspective to know, you know, this is good or this is bad. And I've spent some time in some other industries like, um, you know, education is one of those. And I think just comparing education to insurance, I would say, uh, like Teresa said, we definitely have a long way to go. Um, but I think in education, it's actually ingrained uh, within the environment that we have to fix um, things from the past. And in fact, there's actually a pending Supreme Court case that could affect affirmative action for all universities, which may be another interesting topic when that decision comes out to discuss. Um, and then the the split screen on it is, you know, 
while the the newcomers to the market, the insure techs, should be in theory fixing this problem. And I think when Tony and I looked at the data, it is a little bit better with insure tech, but um, it's definitely further away um, from the education space than closer in terms of both awareness and the actual problem itself. But is the can I ask this though? Is the insure tech space any different than the other than the the rest of the startup space? At scale, I mean, everything we read says that something like 2.7 or to 3% of funding goes to female-founded companies. We know that the representation in the VC world is very limited when it comes to, to females. This is just gender equality we're talking about or gender representation. Is it that different in the insurance industry? Because in the insurance industry itself, I'm presuming if you guys go to conferences out there, that the at least the sexual orientation, sexual representation is pretty even. But in the startup space, what does it look like? No, so I, I definitely think that it is the same problem uh, as with, you know, founders receiving VC funding and insure tech as with the broader environment. But I think if you step down from the founders, right, to the hired executives in, in the companies, a lot of the founders are still continuing to hire people that look and uh, feel like them opposed to trying to kind of add the diversity of perspectives into their executive ranks or their boards. You know, there's things we see and there's perception and then uh, there's reality. So like one thing we like to do is actually look at some data. So we, we did our research actually in 2020. We did an event, uh, diversity uh, themed virtual event. And uh, it was uh, during the heat of like Black Lives Matter. And we wanted to uh, boost that uh, movement a bit. And then we did a bit of research to see if, hey, is there is there a problem, diversity problem? in the insurance industry. So uh, we looked at uh, some certain occupations or functions that uh, the general U.S. Uh, uh, people had in the insurance ecosystem and that, you know, there's actually a, a BLS, the labor statistics data that existed, mm -hmm. uh, which had broken down the, the occupation by claims, sales, and underwriters. These are insurance-specific roles. And uh, we found that uh, in general, it was quite diverse, like in terms of uh, uh, sexual kind of uh, distribution and uh, racial distribution. Uh, it's difficult to; they didn't have data on um, uh, gender preference or anything like that. Right. Uh, but you know, they had data on sex and race. Interesting thing is, there's a lot of black people in the insurance. There's a lot of uh, female people in 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 insurance. The problem actually is when you don't see a lot of them in the executive ranks. Right. So that's kind of the the uh, the result that we saw. The executive ranks that that we actually did research on was um, based on top carriers by premium, life annuity, and uh, and PNC. Fair enough. Uh, we look. We actually looked at their executives and what they look like, and and uh, there definitely are less female. Uh, executives and less, definitely less black executives, uh, you know, in, in the, in these companies. Tony, I mean, if I'm looking at the same spreadsheet that you're looking at, the data is almost bang on to the structure of the U S population. It's almost bang on. And the one thing yeah. that I thought was kind of interesting, and I'm curious for everyone to comment on this as well, is that the Asian representation just at scale kind of dropped a little bit, but then came back, right, to about 6%, and Asians are about 6% of the U.S. population as well. I don't know. I just thought the data was really interesting. Does it, does it matter yeah. from a leadership perspective 
where everybody falls out? And if it does, it should, what should happen? Like what kind of strategy should insurance companies have and insure tech companies have to foster this diversity and inclusion? So I, a couple of things, right? David talked about awareness yep. and awareness of insurance as an industry. seems like it, it exists. Uh, what, there is like some fallacy, that at least at least in my mind, there was some fallacy that uh, maybe women are not interested in insurance or maybe, you know, black people aren't interested in insurance, but it seems they are interested. They are actually in our industry. You yeah. see a lot of them. I think, Teresa, you mentioned you, you, you mentioned that there are a lot of people. You see them, right? It's just that they're not moving up the ranks. And so it's, I think that's, that's the problem I think we have is how do we help black, Asian, Hispanic women uh, minority uh, employees to uh, move up the ranks uh, uh, and nurture their their ability to to be a manager and and, and uh, have have power in, in, in the industry. I think that's really the problem, and it's not an easy problem because there's a lot of factors that contribute to this. Um, but I think one thing that David mentioned earlier is you know as a, if you're an executive trying to hire or promote. Uh, you you do have to kind of think of this, uh, uh, you know, try not to just hire people who look like you, right? And yeah. and this and the, the thing is, that this is this is a problem David and I have as well. Like we want to hire uh, diverse employees. Uh, at the same time, we want to hire the best. And and sometimes they happen to be white male, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, but I think what I think pe what people can do better is. Do do look at others and don't dismiss them just because you they don't look like you. I guess that's one thing that you can do. I just also, you know, want to shift the conversation a bit to why is it actually important to have diversity and have people from like different backgrounds and you know different experiences? Because when it comes to product design, you know, naturally, and you know, if you're looking at insurance, right? So naturally, your personal experiences is what goes into designing products, right? Um, that has nothing to do with discrimination or, you know, it's just the, the reality um, a person lives. So if the actuarial department of an insurance company is predominantly, you know, white male, and it, it is, you know, unfortunately still the case that a lot of insurance products are developed, you know, internally instead of looking at the market and what the market needs. So these people are developing products that cater to their risk profile, to their worries, to their needs, right? Um, so I think getting more diversity into um, you know this sector and especially looking at, at product um, development at this point um, really helps to access new markets. And um, you know, just to give you an example, in, in Australia, there is a new company that specializes on financial products for women called Stella. Um, we have actually had Sam White, um, the founder on the Asia InsurTech podcast, and she talked about how they are looking at product development from you know like a woman's perspective. That does not mean that this excludes um, you know men wanting to buy the product, but it just you know opens up the perspective of you know what other risks are out there that need solving and i think that is really one of the important points to get more diversity in product design but also you know in sales when it comes to sales strategy how do you get um you know those products to the right demographic 
And just because of that, it is important for organizations to create this diversity because it opens up much more um, business opportunity for, for everyone. I'm going to say something really controversial as well. And Teresa, I don't think I've shared this with you yet, but when we published that episode for Stella, right, Sam was amazing. I, I got so much blowback from the female listeners who told me they were so mad about a woman building an insurance company just for women. It shocked me, actually. Mm -hmm. It really yeah. did, Tony. I can see you're looking at like why. I, I didn't understand yeah. it, but again, I'm not a I'm not a woman either. But some of these ladies were really, really mad because they're like, "You're just doing the same thing that the guys are doing," and that's the other point that I want to make here. That's the other thing I want to talk about because you know, Tony, you said this: you want to have the best candidates, but you want to expand the sort of diversity inside your own company. And it's important. You guys run your own company. We run our our company as well. And how do you get? Because how do you get out of that bubble? Do you know what I mean? Like if you go to a specific religious event, you're going to be part of that group. You're going to go to that. Those are the people that you're going to know. If you go to like a club that you've joined, you're going to just sit with the people that you know. How do you get out of that bubble, particularly from a recruitment perspective and say, I need to do more of something else, but you don't even know where to go to do it. And then you're going to feel the same way. I always use this example of color, right? But fake colors. If you walk into a room of all blue people, and you're a white guy, you're just not going to feel comfy, even if they're begging you to come into that room, right? So I always talk about diversity as something you can't bolt on later. You've just got to do it from the beginning. And this is, this is something that I find really, really hard to reconcile because if you one day wake up and notice, oh, it's not very diverse here. If you try to make it diverse, people are going to look and think, yeah, I don't want to go there because I'm the only person that's different. How do you reconcile mm -hmm. that? Michael, maybe I'll, I'll take a shot at this. And, Please. Um, this may not be a, a perfect answer because it's not necessarily a, a prescriptive recruiting strategy, but I think there's at least one way that, that I look at it is like, you have to think about the circles which you sit in yeah. and how can you create non-overlapping circles through activities that you do in your life. So, I mean, common things, let's just say if you're an insurance producer, right, is like you have hobbies, you might be interested in golf, you might be in a country club, um, you might have a certain set of restaurants that you go to and a certain set of social activities. And if you look around in those restaurants and your golf activity or sports activity and the social circles that you're in, uh, maybe you send your kids to a, a private school yep. um, and the people look predominantly like you. Yep. That's the definition of of your circle. And you basically have to say, how do I put myself in a situation where none of those circles look like me, right? So I'll give a, a crazy example because I think it's just something in my life, but my wife is really interested in the EDM music, which is definitely not a primary circle for me. So, you know, I've gone to my fair share of music festivals and um, EDM concerts, and I can tell you that is definitely not my circle, but, you know, I do my best to embrace it, be aware of it and kind of study it. So it's a kind of case study in my life, but you could just think about it logically, right? Like maybe the comedy club you go into in your neighborhood is looks like you, but you could just pick a different neighborhood where you go to the comedy club and um, you'll start to meet a lot of different people. So I think if you can apply that in your social life, there's other ways, as you could imagine, to apply that in your business life as well.
Yeah, I think that that's a really good, you know, tactic. Is this will help you personally too, right? Like, like David, you mentioned some of these, but obviously you can do this personally, but you can also do it professionally. And I was just thinking as, as you're sharing this, David, that David and I, and actually our main job, one of our main job is like creating communities, right? Yeah. We are creating a podcast community here and, and David and I run events and, and we can actually create those circles so that people come when, when they come, they, they interact with diverse people. And so it, I think it's, I just kind of realized that it's, we have a responsibility here to actually foster more diversity so that, um, you know, people don't have to forcefully create those circles. We can, they can just come to our events and the community and see the diversity, uh, uh right away. I do multiple podcasts insurance. I've done a fintech podcast. I do a general tech podcast. I do an e-commerce, like a tons of them. And when I reach out, it could be my age. I, I don't know. Like, I don't understand this yet, <laughs> but I don't think it's my demeanor. But if I reach out online to a male cohort, I'd probably get a 95% response rate and probably 90% of them say yes. And if I reach out to women online, I probably get like a 20% response rate. Hmm. And hundred percent of those people that, that do respond are skeptical. Go ahead, Teresa. So I try really yeah, hard. I actually, I also looked at that, right? Because I'm also trying to, um, you know, get guests for, for the shows we are running. Yep. And, um, I have actually the same experience. Like, as you said, 95%, when I reach out to men they, and tell them like, Hey, you know, you are amazing. We would love to have you on our show. 95% say yes. Right. If I do the same with women. I get a lot of like, oh, I'm not sure, um, you know, if what I have to say is really relevant. So I don't think it has anything to do necessarily. And to be honest, I have now a different experience in the U.S. I have more women in the U.S. agreeing to, you know, join a podcast compared to what we are experiencing in Asia. Right. So I think it's it's not so much about the the person um, approaching. Um, the you know guest speaker in this case, it's more about do they feel like they fit in and they have something to say? Yeah, I get that a lot. Yeah, it's also a trust thing as well. I guess mm -hmm. women want to feel like you know you're trustworthy more so than men. Men, men maybe are a little more reckless, I guess, in some sense, and just doing whatever. And women are a little more careful um, and and uh, just want to feel safe and secure. Yeah, but I, I really do think yeah. it has to do with not seeing a lot of representation that looks like you, right? Like, as I mentioned, in right. Asia, there were hardly any women speaking at conferences, right? And if you if you can see it, you can believe it. So if there is a not a lot of that happening, and that's also why I believe now my experience in the U.S. is a bit different, because you do see more female speakers. Um, and, you know, because it is normalized, they might feel more comfortable, whereas in a region where you don't see that many women, and you know, I can believe you can project that to to any you know group of people. If you see a lot of people that look like you do a thing, you feel comfortable doing the same thing. If you don't see that many people you are that look like you that have the same background as you, you might have more of a resistance to go there. Yeah, so I was just going to bring up another analogy from this week. Uh, so this week we ran InsureTech Trails, and essentially that's a program to bring together founders and investors 
essentially on a retreat. So the idea is, you know, most conferences, people are in a major urban environment in a hotel. And um, we do this event typically in the Rocky Mountains. We have a lot of outdoor networking activities. And for the last couple of these, we really struggled to get a gender balance. We're definitely not at at 50-50, but this past event we had this week uh, was definitely better than I would say all of the other previous ones. And the reason how we were able to do it is basically trying really hard. Um, the pool is definitely smaller, as we talked about, um, in terms of you know leaders and VCs that are women and uh, female founders. But if you reach out to you know like three times as many women as men, like that definitely uh, increases the odds. And to uh, Teresa's point earlier, like if we have pictures from the past events that kind of feature uh, female investors and founders, that definitely helps and and ask others who attended in the past. Um, but I think that's, at least from my perspective, like if you want to change it, it's not like you can just like magically flip a switch. Like you actually yeah. have to put effort in, you have to do marketing, you have to have conversations and um, you have to help people get over concerns that they have that this is not for them. How do you handle this kind of stuff internally, right? So if you're running your own company, how do you communicate this to people without kind of banging them over the head with it? When I was at Goldman, nobody ever said you have to work really hard and outwork everybody. You just kind of looked around and everybody was just like cranking it out constantly, right? So you could figure out what the culture was. But I feel like this kind of needs a little bit of an explanation. How do you explain this internally and even externally to stakeholders? I, I think one, I referenced what Teresa said, which is like, why do we care? Yeah. Right. And I think that has to be clear from top down, like why they should care. They're just saying, oh, we should just be diverse because like that's what everybody else is telling right. us to do. And, you know, it's just we want to check the box. Then you're not going to really do anything. You're going to create a diversity officer who has no power and just they're going to want some events and nothing will happen. Right. Yeah. And so the CEO uh, from top word level has to really believe that diversity actually it does help the business. And and uh, I attended this Emerging Managers Fund event uh, a few weeks ago, and there's been many uh, venture funds and other private equity funds where they focus on diversity, not for the sake of diversity, but because they saw higher performance uh, in investing in companies that are diverse. And there's a lot of data out there. Maybe we can potentially, uh, Michael, we can interview me some of these uh, experts who's done some analysis do on it. diversity versus performance. Yep. And um, it's been decades of data out there that, that, that suggests that if you have diverse executives, of course, board, diverse employees, then they do better. Kind of makes sense because a lot, a lot of us, a lot of the companies are in the business of helping the broader population. And, and to Teresa's point, the better the more the better information we have and the more we understand about each of the di- dynamic different groups, the better we're going to do business-wise. Yeah. And so once you bleed that, then you you implement solutions like what David said, right? And it, let's say there's zero executives and they're all white male. Again, there's nothing wrong with my I think that's one of the things that we feel like we're kind of putting them down. There's nothing wrong with being white male. It's fine. It's just we want others to also come up the ranks. And so if there's zero, then they should make it a priority to to try to talk to more female potentials or, or black or Asian, right? And if you try, things will happen. 
doesn't mean you have to hire them. You hire the best, but if you try and put more effort in, then it just naturally happens. It's nothing new that you know diversity can drive innovation. I think it's now almost 10 years ago where um, there was this Harvard Business Review article that talked about how you know a diverse team fosters innovation. And I've experienced that in my own career. Like I worked 10 years for Generali and mainly in like the corporate life um, employee benefits sector in Germany. And wow. my coworker is like the, you know, the CEO of, of the corporate life um, entity. He spent his entire career working for this company. And so were all the other senior leaders, right? So you can't expect innovation. They are really good at what they are doing, but changing something doesn't come natural because they are all surrounded by people who grew up the same way, who, you know, has spent their entire careers together. And then finding new innovative ways to make changes is just, you know, really difficult if you bring in people, um, you know, from different backgrounds, um, different experiences. That is where, you know, controversial conversations start, where then, you know, you come up with new ideas or identify problems that you haven't seen before because, you know, you haven't experienced them. Pivoting a little bit from what Teresa said and kind of building on what Tony was sharing about, you know, the people that are in the room, essentially, we had a founder named Anita from a company called Oniva, which is uh, an employee benefits company focused on providing childcare and uh, kind of parent care uh, through companies. And um, she's a black female founder. And her point was, you know, we're less than 1% of the founders that received venture capital. So she said, like, the fact that I'm here in the room means that I've had to go through dozens, if not hundreds of additional obstacles that other founders may not have had. So if you're thinking of, you know, reviewing my company or investing in me, um, you should give me kind of extra bonus points because of all of the hurdles that I had to go through. And I think a lot of investors don't necessarily think about that internal bias that exists in the world. And they just look at everyone equally. But I think if they acknowledge that bias, they might actually kind of go back to their table of investment criteria and say, you know, this adds to the persistence part of it. And, you know, at least for us as investors, like we know that persistence definitely leads to performance. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was just going to say the fact that she was even in that room means she's been kicking some serious, you know what, just to get there, right? Because the chances of her being there are closer to zero than they are to one for sure. There, there are particular things that are that make this venture capital difficult, and I'll, I'll maybe leave you all with this last thought and let you comment on it as well. If you're an early stage investor, right, a seed stage investor, even a pre-Series A investor, you're banking on the fact that somebody else is going to invest after this as well, right? So if you make a seed stage investment in company C, and even if it's, again, doing super well, it's founded by, you know, a black woman and a Hispanic man, Yeah. One of the things that's going on in the back of a seed state investor's head is who's going to invest in this at the Series A or the Series B level, even if it's subconscious, right? And this may be particularly difficult in venture capital just because it's so obvious that there needs to be a next round. Do you think about this at all? And is that, is that too controversial a thing to say? But you know what I mean, right? Because even if they put their money in and even if the company does really well, even if that, even if that founding team's amazing, they may struggle to get the next round of founding funding just because of who they are. No? 
Yes. So, Michael, I think that's a really good point and uh, kind of of our fun team. I'm usually the one that hangs out with the other uh, VCs, hence the InsureTech Trails and in, in Aspen event. Yep. But I think if your belief is holistic that you want to make this change and, and difference, right, then what you have to do is build relationships up the value chain, right? Like Series A, Series B investors that can follow on. And I think one of the better VC partnerships that we have is with a company called Aperture Ventures. And to your point, um, one of the GPs is black, one of the GPs is Hispanic, and their entire premise is about funding inclusion. Yep. And they also thought about how do we be up the value chain. So many of their LPs are banks and insurance companies that also have, you know, direct venture investment arms that would have interest in one diversity and two investing in their portfolio companies. So I think our partnership with Aperture is definitely something if people want to make change, one, like definitely they can be friends with William and, and Garnett. But beyond that, like there are other funds that have an inclusion perspective. And if you're earlier stage and you can become friends with them. Michael, you know, you're you're kind of making a point that when you're investing in in a startup, potentially you could look at the founders network and and you know their uh, success probability, right? So if if for example, if they're black woman and they struggle, they got to that point, great. But you know, the, given the fact that she's a black woman, she's going to continue to struggle. And so, uh, the chances of her success might be low, lower than if it was white male, which is probably a true statement. Um, but I think what uh, I think what David and I were saying is that may be the case, but there are things we can do as a, a investor to kind of mitigate that. And I think at some point, and this is more a theory than uh, factual, but I think at some point, if a uh, 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 founder has reached a certain level of success with this company, mm -hmm. racial factors become less and less a problem because it's not just, it's like in your early stage, you're just one or two people with one employee and you're just like hustling, making things work. And like, you are the company, but like, once you get to see series A, series A, you're not the only person, right? There's, uh, you have a team in place that's probably more diverse and, and they bring their networks. So it's a less, I think, founder led problem. Okay. I mean, I just wanted to get that point out there so people could hear that comment and think about it. And I really appreciate the, the thoughtful answers from everybody. I want to thank David Gritz and Tony Liu, co-founders of InsureTech New York and Teresa Blissing for having this incredible conversation. Let's do more of this. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Sound great. Thank you. Thanks.